0: Again, the URL is unchangedcrypto.substack.com. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two
1: funds. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet.
0: Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless, anyways. Um, um, unnamed I trading know. firms who are very involved. Alec.eth
1: is the ultimate possible. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the chopping block. Every couple of weeks, the uh, usually four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspectives on the crypto topics of the day. So uh, we're, we're broadcasting this one live here from Palo Alto. We're all in town for the Stanford Blockchain Conference. So quick intros. First of all, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Actually, Tarun couldn't make it today. So Jill is our is our stand-in Tarun. So she is the empress of espresso. Uh, thanks for joining us, Jill. And uh, then we've got myself. I'm Haseeb. I'm the head hype man at Dragonfly. So... Uh, we are early-stage investors in crypto, uh, but I just want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. So, Jill, it's it's great to see you. It's been a long time since we've seen you in person. I think since the pandemic, we haven't yeah. seen you. Yeah, it's been how's, well. how's pandemic life been?
2: It's been pretty good. Yeah. I mean, San Francisco itself, which is where I've been based, it's felt like I've been like the last woman standing in the Bay Area at mm-hmm. times. But SBC this week has been so refreshing to have... All of the old crowd kind of back in town, be able to see the likes of you guys in person. So that's been great.
1: I think in yeah. a bear market, you need an event like this that is not about hype. Because almost every conference you go to, it's like I mean, consensus, permissionless. They're all about like, oh my God, this crazy thing is going to happen. Stanford Blockchain Conference is great because it's it's, um, it's slightly sleepy. Yeah. You know, it's, like, the people who are there, the they're, like, there to give talks. It's mostly researchers and academics.
2: There's all this gravitas around Exactly, it like exactly.
1: So you just – you 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 go up and you're, like, meeting all these, like, Stanford dropouts who are, like, I'm starting an Oracle project and blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, oh, okay, yeah, this is, like – they're still here. People are still doing stuff.
2: Yeah, there's real stuff happening. It's also just been a nice reminder that, like, you see people in person and – generally people are, are a little toned do- down from their like Twitter personalities, yeah, Reddit, Discord personalities, whatever. And you're just like, ah, oh, yes, there is sanity in this industry. And like, you know, it, it, you can relate to these people. <laughs> it's not just like, you know, all of the tomato throwing that that you get on social media.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's also, it's weird, being around a lot of Stanford kids, because there's a lot of Stanford kids oh, yeah. at SBC. Um, so many of them are dropouts, and it's like I guess it's like I mean you, you were telling me about this because Tom is also a Stanford kid or was once upon a time <laughs> back in his kid kingdom. Uh, yeah, we're old now. Like, we're boomers. it seems like if, if you drop out of Stanford, they're just like, oh yeah, of course. Like why wouldn't you drop out? Of Stanford? Yeah, yeah. You're yeah. supposed to drop out of Stanford. Yeah. What's like the what's like the 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 culture around startups? And yeah, pop, that's like know? that's like
0: top tier. Top tier is like, oh, you dropped out. You know, you're too good. And then you know, middle tier is maybe. You know, graduate
1: in three years. That's like middle yeah, tier. yeah,
0: yeah. And then it's like oh, you're you know, working at a Fang startup or like a Fang company or something like that. Okay, that's like
1: that's like C two. Yeah, I,
0: although I was kind of disheartened to learn recently. So I did computer science, um, and you know, it was very popular as I was started to be there. Um, I was talking to some recent CS grads, and they said like 20 of all the CS grads now are going into product management. And I'm like, I think that's that's cool, but I would like to see more you know engineers coming out of the CS department or you know something like that. Uh, what was it in your day? Probably like sub five percent. Sub five yeah. percent. Okay. Wow.
2: wow. You did not drop out.
0: I did not drop out. I'm a loser. I, <laughs> I, I, I have an undergraduate degree, so <laughs> it's, it's such a nerd. I can't believe.
2: Me too. Such and great. mine's not even from Stanford. So <laughs> no, uh, no, yeah. Well,
1: yeah. yeah I. I uh, it does feel like product manager at a fang startup is like the new
2: management
0: consulting. Yes. Definitely. That's like
1: if you're if you're just like kind of clean cut, respectable, smart but you don't want to be doing some boring nerdy stuff. Totally, product manager is like the elite
2: totally. job,
1: especially yeah. especially West Coast.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Although you know, I don't know. Now that now that we're in this broader bear market, I mean, it's not just it's not just crypto. Obviously, tech is, is also feeling it. You know, we just saw yesterday. I think we saw a Snap like lay off twenty percent of their of their uh, oh, uh, and their that. workforce. Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah. So it's uh, it's it's pretty, pretty dreary all around. Yeah, in in, uh, in in tech land. So so maybe maybe things will be going back around maybe finance will get hot again. Yeah. Although
2: Are you, are you guys feeling bullish or bearish uh, on a macro level? Cuz you ask this of everyone who comes on the show. We do. Uh, that, gotten... that
1: is the one question we're known for is asking. Yeah. Uh, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> talk about macro though. Um
1: what do I feel about macro? Um Dude, I don't know. Like how I the, the thing is, I think I had a view on macro that I felt like it was interesting to articulate 6 months ago. Now everybody knows everything there is to know, right? Like everybody's watching these inflation numbers. Everybody understands that, okay, will the Fed pivot? Will the Fed not pivot? So I think I have zero alpha in predicting where macro is going to go. What do you think?
2: I don't know. It is just kind of wild that we've come full circle from sort of the quantitative easing days where everyone was watching the Fed then, obviously, to, you know, see, you know, how big the the buybacks or whatever were going to be that month. And now here we are watching the Fed try to drain all of that liquidity Mm. out of the market. And I feel kind of the same way. I mean, in general, I think that I skew bearish Mm. just because it feels like there has been such a pump into the money supply and whatever over the last several years that is only just starting to get mopped up. And again, maybe it's partly living in the Bay Area, but like. I don't know. My coffee gets more expensive every day. Still, I'm. I've hmm. yet to. I've yet to feel like that liquidity is being mopped up out of the market. But as you say, it's a very unoriginal take at this point. It's just sort of trying I mean, to read I, the Fed tea leaves. I, I
1: was. Um, I was bearish on the market back in December, or January. I remember telling a lot of our LPs that, like, I think the. I think. I think the market's going to turn and things are going to get rough. And at that time, I was like very proud of myself about prognosticating about macro when it was relatively quiet. Yeah. Now it's just like, I mean, every single one of our LPs is thinking about macro. You know, nobody, nobody, at this point, everybody is kind of a macro armchair analyst, you know. I
2: I will say watching the macro environment, especially like everyone paying so close attention to speak and all of that, Mm. it does kind of renew my hope and faith in these new models that we're creating in crypto. Mm. Because it's very easy sometimes to look at like... (laughs) I don't know, you go on, like, the maker governance forum, and you're just like, what the hell is going on here? Like, this is a total shit show. This is going to be no way to, like, create the future of money. And then you realize, like, we're all hanging on the every word of these suits, you know, hanging out in Jackson Hole. And, like, that is driving literally the undulations of the entire global economy. And you're like, all right, you know what? I'll, I'll take the maker forum, actually. Like, yeah. this is this is maybe an improvement.
1: I, I can see that. I mean, it is it is definitely weird that, like, okay, the, the intonation that, uh, you know, the, the intonation you hear in a speech ends up moving markets, you know, totally. by, you know, totally. hundreds of billions what? of dollars. It's, at, you know, at the same it's time. It's all
2: such word sell energy. And I say that as a word sell. <laughs> but, like, I don't know. I feel like monetary policy, it feels so not based in actual data. Yeah. Like, yeah. Hmm. Where is that analysis? And, I mean, I guess it comes down to the fact that this data is actually very hard to get, let mm-hmm. alone, like, clean up and actually, um, you know, analyze and and form policy off of. But, yeah, I don't know. That's my take. Well, it, it, It's funny because this very energy. much
1: mirrors one of the big stories of the week, which mm-hmm. we might as well jump into. So, uh, Avalanche ended up going down 20% a single day oh because of a new story oh. that came out, yeah. which is, you know, again, not about data, not about numbers, <laughs> but about – a story. So the story, I'll, I'll, give the, I'll give the TLDR because it's it's kind of a long and kind of winding uh, narrative. But basically what happened was that uh, there's this class action lawyer named uh, Kyle Roche, I think yeah. is his name. Uh, he basically, he's kind of one of these like chasing after big class action, a lot of spurious lawsuits against, I think there's one against Binance, there's one against Solana. Um, and so apparently uh, this guy was caught drunk talking to somebody who videoed him just kind of drunkenly uh, rambling. Who was apparently
2: an associate of Dominic
1: Williams. Exactly. Yeah. Apparently who was employed, in the employ of Dominic Williams, who's like a bitter enemy of Emin Gunsire, who's the founder of Avalanche. Um, and so it looks like there's some kind of oppositional research uh, because there's some kind of lawsuit that is going on with ICP that Kyle Roche is, is participating in. It, it's very vague. There's all these like weird innuendos and conspiracies around this stuff. But TLDR, um, so he was caught on film. And he basically claimed that he was the attack dog of Avalanche, that he owns a bunch of Avalanche, and that he's intentionally suing other people in order to d- deflect attention away from Avalanche by regulators. And so soon after this, uh, basically, the, the Avalanche team came out and said, this is not true. You know, this guy, he was an early – we used him as an early law firm. He owned some equity because we paid in equity in the very early days back in our seed round, but we have like 12 law firms. He's just one of them. He's not our primary guy. Uh, and we definitely don't approve of any of the class action bullshit he's doing. And in fact, we actually you – know, the Solana lawsuit that, that uh, was announced not too long ago, um, the, the Avalanche team actually published a, a blog post against the lawsuit saying that this was a spurious lawsuit and this is bad for the industry. Um, and then Kyle Roche also went out and said this was opposition research by the ICP guys, the website that leaked this called cryptoleaks.info. Is uh, apparently funded by ICP in some way, and it's,
0: it's very blatant. Like if you, the three totally. releases, and they're all going after people who are going after ICP, and it's like if you want to have sort of like a you know uh, uh, outlet like that, that is you know just trying to publish you. Know, a pro news stories, you feel like you'd be a little bit less blatant. Well, right? did
2: you notice though on this latest one, the headline was not about ICP; it was about Solana. Mm. Like, oh, like this guy's going after Solana. But then you read through it, and yeah, it's like it's all, all about, about yeah, it's all about avalanche. And it, it, like, yeah, I, I thought that that was kind of a hilarious, like such a weak attempt to mask the <laughs> sort of like the ICP leaning of this crypto leaks website by just putting Solana in the headline. Yeah. It,
1: it, so it, it's all very stupid. I mean, when I when I initially saw this, I was like, this is such a weird...
2: Did you watch this. the videos? I did. I did watch it's the videos. It's so painful. It's very painful. It's so painful. It's, painful. it's I, I don't know. I felt like, oh, my God, I've had so many of these types of conversations with just these, like, I don't know, people in the industry who want to feel super important. And, mm-hmm. like, okay, maybe they are in the middle of things to some degree, but, like, you know, the ego is what's coming first. They want right. to, like flex on you about, like, how much of, like, some token supply they have and, mm-hmm. you know, how their work is, like, driving, you know, the, the way that the industry is going. You're just like, oh, my God, please.
1: <laughs> I know what you mean.
2: Like, I how do I get mean. out of this dinner right now? Yeah, <laughs> like, that was how I felt. The
1: people in crypto this. love to take credit for things. Totally. And, and magnify totally. their own importance. totally. And, but, look, by and large, so we're, we were early investors into Avalanche. We were early investors into ICP. We own both. This whole thing just seems incredibly stupid to me, and it's 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 grown to such a crazy firestorm. I think Avalanche price recovered a little bit once the denial started coming out, and just you know, the market kind of gathered a bit of steam. But I don't know; it, it feels like we are, we're we're in a pretty slow news week. If this yeah, is yeah. like the main thing that people are excited about,
2: yeah, no, totally, totally. But uh, to me, like, I don't know. I read through the whole thing and I was like, okay, I don't think. Based on reading it, that Avalanche like was telling Kyle Roche to like go do these things. Like, there didn't seem to be any sort of evidence of that, even in the videos. But it would be totally believable to me that, like, okay, this guy has some outsized stake of some L1. Like, yes, it is in his personal best interest, whether he's even processing that yeah. on like a cognitive mm-hmm. level or whether it's just subconsciously, to go out and like cause a bunch of shit storms around other competitive projects like yes this is how incentives work right. like for an industry that is entirely founded on game theory and incentives it is bizarre to me that there's like i don't know all of this naysaying that like someone may be acting in line with their own incentives like this this should not be surprising
1: look i i understand the hatred toward kyle roche because like for sure these all you have lawyers, to do is
2: watch these videos yeah these, i mean look, he,
1: he's clearly a douche. And these class action lawyers, in general, like, they're, I don't know, they're, like, they're, like, one step removed from, like, injury lawyers or something. Yeah, totally. Because they're, like, totally. you can tell when you watch the videos from this guy, he's extremely predatory. Yeah. And kind of just yeah, braggadocio. And it's just, like, okay, whatever. Like, this is your jam. This is what you do. You, like, sue. You you find, like, weird plaintiffs and, you know, you, you, you kind of magnify cases and try to get people in trouble. Which is fine, okay? You got to earn your bread. I get it. Yeah. But... Um, I agree with you. Like, okay, class action lawyer is an asshole and he owns some AVAX. Like, that's a story. And, okay, that, that doesn't seem like much of a story to me. But um, I, I think there's a high likelihood that after all of this, this guy might get disbarred or might get some kind of disciplinary action. Just like as a lawyer yeah, saying – I think that one of the big pieces that I think um, most of the press and most of the users don't care about, the users like this conspiracy that AVAX is pulling the strings and causing all these – But the thing that I I suspect... Discord communities
2: love a conspiracy. uh, They do, they do, they
1: do. Now, courts don't necessarily care, right? Because, like, where you get your funding from doesn't matter. But what does matter is that one of the claims he made was that he was using information he got in discovery from uh, filing some of these lawsuits with other L1s and using that, Mm. you know, feeding that back to other people. And that's, like, extremely illegal. Like, that's, like, super not cool. Yeah. So if he was doing that, he will get in a lot of trouble for that. But that didn't seem to be the thing that uh crypto twitter cared it's, about
2: yeah that's being highlighted here exactly
1: exactly so whether or not that's true i don't know to me this feels like probably something that we will nobody will be talking about in two
2: weeks the fact that the price moved what was it 20 percent. that 20% is massive bonkers that is yeah, insane yeah,
0: I yeah. Think sometimes it's like just very you know pure retail reflexivity where everyone's like oh this is bad and therefore other people think it's bad other people will sell and it's like you, know, you see this around just random miscellaneous news, news items around different coins as well. And yeah,
2: it's, like, it's greater fool no- theory on the yeah, way exactly, Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, totally.
1: Bizarre. Anyway, okay, I, I'm going to make an executive decision to move on because I, I feel like we've already lost too many brain cells talking about this. Um, so the, I feel like the other big news has been the continued fallout from Tornado Cash. So uh, yes. quick reminder, Tornado Cash privacy protocol, they were sanctioned by OFAC, the Office of Foreign Asset Control. Um, so there've been many differing responses to what, to how people deal with the tornado cache sanctions. So we mentioned, I think in our last episode that right out of the gate, one of the first things that happened was that, uh, circle blocked some of the addresses, uh, that were in tornado cache. There was, uh, Infura and, um, what was the other one? Alchemy. Alchemy also blocked, um, uh, API requests to, to tornado cache. Um, but the damage has, has started to grow. Started to become more and more people who are increasingly convinced that they need to do something to prevent uh, retail users from getting access to Tornado Cash. Uh, one of the things that we've seen is that, so uh, the, the natural think you, uh, the natural thought you might have is that, okay, if, if Infura is blocking meta, uh, Tornado Cash and Alchemy is blocking Tornado Cash, right, those are two big RPC endpoints people use to interact with the blockchain, uh, then maybe we need some decentralized RPC endpoints right. that can give you decentralized API access to the blockchain, enter in Pocket Network which is a decentralized RPC network. That's the, the idea, the decentralized Infura. Uh, Pocket Network decided to also block Tornado Cache. Which is like, wait, what? Why, what's, why are you there then? What yeah. are you doing that's different than the centralized ones? So when I saw that, I just my my brain just broke. and I was like, why do you exist if you are also blocking Tornado Cache? Mm. Um, and so Pocket Network has blocked Tornado Cache. Uh, and then we also saw a bunch of drama in Flashbots land.
2: Mm.
1: So Flashbots... Um, TLDR Flashbots is an auction for minor attractable, maximal extractable value, such minor extractable value, also known as MEV. Basically, it's it's a very integral part of the Ethereum uh, kind of mempool these days. Uh, happens on Flashbots, and Flashbots, uh, the company Flashbots, they run the largest relay for these kinds of uh, off chain auctions, and their relay now uh, now integrates OFAC restrictions. Now apparently it it had been integrating OFAC restrictions for a long time. Um, but they, uh, you know, I, I, I can't remember what exactly what the precipitating event was. Maybe they just noticed this mm. at the time of the uh, uh, tornado sanctions. So they must have updated the OFAC re- the sanctions list mm-hmm. to, you know, it used to be there was just a bunch of individual addresses that were sanctioned by OFAC uh, that were, like, tied to terrorists or whatever. Uh, and now they've added Tornado Cash contracts. So now you cannot send Tornado Cash uh, interactions through the Flashbots relay um and the and the last thing along this thread was ethermine. Ethermine also yeah. started one of the big mining pools. They also started blocking Tornado Cash transactions from their own blocks. So, we've seen a lot of different varying responses. Here's to get your guys thoughts Tornado Cash sanctions widening.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think um the, the big complication you're right is it, it's it's much simpler to in the past an individual address gets sanctioned, right? Okay, this person, this entity can no longer interact with my application. Now it's saying Anybody cannot interact with this sanctioned smart contract, which is sort of the precedent that's set. And now it's like for, for you know, Flashbots, for example, they have to inspect the bundle and say, hey, are you actually doing anything in this transaction that interacts with the smart contract? So it's like a very different precedent. I think the other thing that has been happening over the past you know, few weeks has been um, different dApps that also run their own front end. So someone like Ave, for example, they build the smart contracts. They also run Aave.com. Um, they integrate with services like TRM, for example, um, which maintains sort of you know, compliance tooling for crypto, basically blocking on the front end um, people who interact with Tornado or people who are one hop from interacting with Tornado. And I think there's been sort of a shitstorm around that of, um, hey, I get that, you know, maybe I can't, um, you know, if I've recently used Tornado, maybe use your thing. But even if I'm if you even have one hop, which is I think like 30% of all Ethereum addresses, are one hop from a Tornado address, or two hops from a Tornado address. Um, they can't use really? that. Really? Yes. Yeah. There's, I think, and if it's three hops, is like ninety percent, and I think four hops is like ninety five percent or something like that. Someone had had a chart. Wow. So it's like, you know, it's just like, like, what are we doing here? Like, like, how how reasonable can you sort of expect um, uh, you know people to sort of comply? And this is all voluntary as well, right? It's um, no one is making them do these things. They're just thinking about, hey, how can I sort of minimize my potential risk? Uh, how can I sort of you know protect myself? Which I empathize with. I think you know, running a front end and, and is, you know, um, you're, you're still you know, taking active service, you're hosting this thing. Um, but it does feel like, you know, when you're looking at three hops out from a tornado interaction, it feels very far.
2: I think it's worth mentioning, though, there are players, at least one major player that comes to mind, who is not going the route of risk aversion over compliance. And that, of course, is our good friends over at Tether. Mm. I love (laughs) that you can just always count on Tether to just be, like, shooting from the hip, like, (laughs) keeping it Wild West crypto, even though, you know, they've also come out and made statements in the past of, like, yes, like, we work within U.S. regulatory frameworks and, like, we are, you know, fully U.S. regulatory. Well, look, in their their
1: defense, in their defense, they claim that they were in contact with OFAC with Treasury. Oh yeah. And no, that no, no. Treasury don't told don't them like, to hey, do me. we need to do we need to sanction these? And they were like, eh.
2: Yeah. And I think that look, I'm not a lawyer, like I don't understand all of the ins and outs of this, but something that I have come to have a greater appreciation of is that oftentimes like OFAC is using sanctions as almost like a negotiating chip or like, mm. you know, a bargaining tool to try to influence the behavior of the party, right, that's that's being sanctioned. And so they don't necessarily even want over compliance, right? They don't want you know third parties in this case, like these on and off ramps or front ends or whatever, to be taking steps that they have not been asked to make, mm. right? Because that then starts to influence, like, okay, well, we as OFAC then no longer have this lever to pull because all of these you know whatever individuals companies have already pulled that lever for us. If that makes sense. Mm. So. Again, I'm not a lawyer. I don't I'm not one of these Washington, D.C. mucky mucks. But based on my understanding, like Tether's position may not be totally unreasonable. Mm -hmm. And and I again, I just kind of love that they're willing to stand there as sort of the mavericks to be like, no, like, you know, when when we get orders to take certain steps, like we will take those. But until then, you know, we're not freezing Tether that your USDT that has. That has touched the contract
1: well it's not just that right the, the tether that's in tornado cash is really tiny it's like it's like in the For single sure. digit thousands yeah. of dollars yeah. so relative to i mean all, the overwhelming amount of uh assets that were in tornado cash were ether and then yes. die yeah. right and then there was a little bit of USDC. um the tether was like almost nothing yeah. very small amount um one of the things that i think what, what what this whole episode has really demonstrated is that of course like the day that the sanctions were announced everyone was scrambling right nobody knew what to do nobody yeah. had ever seen this before yeah right clearly it was like what the hell does it mean that you're sanctioning
2: a smart tornado contract.
1: cash yeah. right yeah. and a smart and a set of smart contracts um people and I think what really happened is that there was probably a snowball in that the first person who decided okay we're going to we're going to block reads and writes to the contract the next person to act looks at that as like oh wait was that what we're supposed to do are we supposed to block reads and writes to the contract oh because if we don't do this People will look at us and be like, wait, 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 they did it. Why didn't you do it? And
2: it's a little bit of an outrun. You don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun, you know, the last person running from the bear mentality. Exactly, exactly.
1: Now, in the case of Tether, look, I mean, I tend to to think that Tether got this one right, which is that the way that you deal with sanctioned addresses is that you don't – the way you deal with illegal activity generally is that you don't let them cash out. So who cashes people out? The answer is exchanges cash people out. And of course, the stablecoin issuers themselves cash people out, right? Uh, But you don't cash out by just transferring tokens, right? There are a lot of tokens that don't ever get cashed out because they're like, look, you can't pass KYC Mm. or like you've done some really shady looking stuff. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to turn your tether back into dollars for you. Um, But stopping tether in circulation, like in some way, that's kind of forcing every single layer of the financial stack. To enforce sanctions, mm. which we don't do,
2: yeah,
1: we don't do that in the normal system, right? In the normal Even system, Swift, That's right. right. Swift right. does not enforce sanctions. Yeah, your bank enforces sanctions, right? We don't tell the we don't tell the Swift network, which is an international and supposed to be you know kind of apolitical system. Yeah, uh, we don't tell Swift to enforce sanctions. We also don't tell your your browser to enforce sanctions, yeah. right? Yeah. So when your browser can tell, oh, you're you're sending stuff to a, a sanctioned entity, your browser doesn't try to figure that out. And, you know, nobody tries to go sue Google Chrome because, oh, you let the sanctioned person interact with a browser to to do banking stuff, right? Like that it's we realize that it's stupid and counterproductive to try to enforce sanctions at all of these layers. You pick one that is the right layer at which to enforce sanctions and you leave everything else alone.
2: So I agree with all that, but at the same time, I can also totally empathize with people who are running companies who have fiduciary duties to their investors sure, sure. to make sure that the company can still keep running and doing business, and maybe its largest market in the United States, and also who, on a personal level, are like shit, OFAC, like thirty years in prison, like really, you know, yeah, as much as OFAC, I believe I mean, in the space, look, like really, OFAC not is not going to gonna put
1: an RPC endpoint into prison for thirty years. Like, but okay, like, you you that's were... such a ridiculous. Like, no, I'm going to push back on this, right? That's bullshit. OFAC might, might fine you like you know, $5,000, $10,000 because, like, oh, you should have did, done that. We don't know. You didn't. We look, don't know. Etherscan, Etherscan, okay, Etherscan still lets you read the Tornado Cash contract, okay? Infura won't let you read it. Infura won't even let you look at it. You want to ask, what is the state of Tornado Cash contract? Infura says,
2: we can talk about, like, the layers of overcompliance here, because I mm-hmm. agree. I think that there are layers of overcompliance. But
1: like, if, if that's where, true for Infura, like, like, why is it not also true for Etherscan? Etherscan lets you read. It also lets you write. You can go connect your Web3 endpoint in Etherscan and interact with a contract.
2: Different comfort levels with the risk that you're taking. Again, that's not just about facing potentially 30 years of prison time, although let's be honest. I mean— Jeremy Allaire, the CEO of Circle, like, called that out directly in his tweet thread about this. Right. Like, that is a real consideration. I think if you're Jeremy Allaire, it's a very
1: different story than if you're an RPC endpoint.
2: Sure. But it is also about, like, your business model and your considerations to your board, to your investors, all of these things. And I don't know much about the business around Etherscan itself, but, like, Knowing what I do know about EtherScan doesn't surprise me that there would be very different considerations and very different line drawn about the comfort level versus uh, is Infuria a U.S. domiciled company. They are, yeah, yeah, it, that you know has a very real, substantial business model around them that I know has sort of like and professional sure does, investors. Oh, sorry, in uh, all EtherScan
1: this. also does business in the U.S., of course, because we're of a course, massive yeah, market and yeah. there are a lot of customers here. But I mean, look, if you if you the difference, between the primary difference. I mean, obviously, one difference might be yeah. whether they're domiciled. Another big difference is that one is a front end, the other doesn't. Yeah. Right. One is API based. I mean, yeah. obviously, EtherScan also has an API, yeah. but mostly we think of it as, as a as a front end web application. Um, to me, this is like a, a, a distinction without a difference. Like mm-hmm. at, at the end of the day, both of them let you read and write to smart contracts, right? If you tell EtherScan, "Hey, why are you guys allowing people to see the front end of Tornado Cash when all these other people have complied?" Right. All these other people. Mm-hmm. Understand the precedent that we've all set as an industry, which is that you pretend Tornado Cash doesn't exist. Somebody sends you something about Tornado Cash, you drop it. it. Doesn't even matter. You're you, you are complicit because of the fact that you facilitated the transaction by forwarding it along to the mempool or just reporting even the state yeah. of the Tornado Cash contract. Yeah. Right. Like to me, that's a crazy interpretation of all this stuff. And so this brings us also to uh, Eric Wall. Mm. So Eric Wall. Um, Brought up the idea, which is, you know, the ether the Ethermine thing. So Ethermine has started to block, yeah, right. you know, OFAC uh, restricted uh, things. And there was – there's was funny. A, a long time ago, there was a a Bitcoin mining um, company. What was the company? Marathon? Yeah. I think it was Marathon that proudly announced that they were starting to do OFAC-compliant blocks oh, mining. Oh, gosh. And, I'd forgotten this. That's right. That's yeah. right. So there was a presser. Yeah, yeah. And then they backed off from it because they were like, wow, that was stupid. <laughs> Never mind. We're not going to do that. This is
2: not a cool marketing move. Guys. Yeah, exactly.
1: Nobody, Nobody's nobody's excited about us Walking now. back now. Um, so – so Ethermine was the first to start. Uh, Ethermine, I think they're they're European, right? I don't know. Yeah, I believe they're European. I uh, believe they're European mining firm um, or mining pool. So uh, Ethermine was the first to start blocking Torino cash addresses in their in their in their pools. And um, you know, as we're moving into the transition to proof of stake, which is coming up very soon, the the questions started to get asked. Okay, are there going to be now OFAC compliant validators that the validators will themselves start blocking transactions? from people interacting with OFAC sanctioned addresses slash, uh, slash contracts. Now we've, we've not seen that before, right? There's, that's a totally new concept that you would start enforcing. You know, it, the natural idea behind blockchains is that they're censorship resistant, meaning that even if there is one miner out there somewhere that's willing to include your transactions, that you will eventually get into a block. Yeah. Okay. You might not get into the first block because maybe the, the next person who mines is OFAC compliant, but, uh, you know, the, the, the fifth, sixth, seventh person who mines a block, they're in Tanzania or something, and they'll mine a block. So in, in proof-of-stake land, what we've seen is that there's a huge amount of concentration of the stake in a small number of players, right? So Lido, obviously, which is a consortium, mm-hmm. so there are a bunch of underlying miners there uh, or validators there. Of course, Coinbase is going to be huge. Binance is going to be huge. Kraken is going to be huge. And there's maybe good reason to believe that these validators will think, like, look, I, I definitely cannot be violating OFAC. Uh, the question is: Is including a transaction into a block violating OFAC sanctions? Am I facilitating the, you know, violation of sanctions by including things into a block? So Brian Armstrong came out and said, "Look, we we're not going to do this. If if our lawyers told us that there was no way to run a validator without violating OFAC restrictions, we'd have to censor. We would either not run a validator at all. Yeah." Or we would find some other we'd find some other solution, right? So he's kind of vague about what that might mean, but okay, maybe there's some maybe there's some way to outsource it or something. Um, it seems like so. So Eric Wall brought up this notion that I think people hadn't been talking about so much about um, okay, well, how do, how do you actually enforce this norm? Right? How do you enforce the norm of the idea that hey, businesses by default are going to be risk averse. Because they have a lot to lose, right? Mm. They're scared of jail time. They're scared of, you know, fines, whatever. Uh, and so for them, it's like, look, I, it's not like it's not like I really care whether or not I include tornado cash transactions. Like there's not a lot of money in that. So I, I would much rather take 99% of the reward and take zero percent of the risk and just be OFAC compliant. Mm. That is the game theoretic equilibrium, is to just say, okay, well, of course, you just don't tell. Everyone becomes OFAC compliant. Yeah. And the question is, how do you stop that as a community, as a as a as a culture? And Eric Wall's answer to that is like, well, we have this concept that we haven't touched in a very long time oh, of what's called social slashing. <laughs> because basically the idea is that we decide to hard fork the network and delete this person's stake because they were doing something that is not in line with Ethereum principles. And this kind of started up this conversation about, hey, maybe this is the only tool that the community really has mm-hmm. to change the dynamic such that the default doesn't become Ethereum is OFAC compliant by default. What do you guys think about this idea?
2: I I think that this is, okay. Firstly, I think that the idea of social slashing itself is problematic because, okay, well, then how do you get to consensus on who the bad guys are here? Like the thing that gets missed, and I think that this goes to your point around pocket network and, you know, all of these other sort of like decentralized systems that like, oh, now you're censoring stuff like a decentralized system doesn't mean like nobody controls it and now it's just running out there and like you know it it cannot be censored and uh and all of these things that we want to believe it means all it means is that there's a network of nodes coming to consensus about what reality and and the source of truth is and you wind up at the same quagmire if you institute something like social slashing because you again have to come to consensus about okay, well then who's getting slashed? How do we fork this and so on and so forth? So, I think that it's problematic on that level. I also just think that this is just classic case of like technologists wanting to technologize. Mm. It's like, how do we actually approach this as an industry? How do we actually solve this problem? Well, we go in and we make sure that lawmakers and, uh, you know, folks in Congress, staffers on the Hill. We make sure that Treasury Department, all of these folks are educated about what is tech stack and what is sort of, you know, equivalent of like a Swift-like system here, just running, processing a payments network versus what has, I think the word is like specific intent behind it Mm. to enable, you know, things like money laundering and like We're going to have to figure out as an industry sort of where exactly that line gets drawn. But I think that it's pretty clear that things like running nodes should be in the category of like, this is tech stack. This should not be touched by financial regulation and enforcement. And there are all kinds of other areas like the on and off ramps of the front ends. And so I, I guess that's where kind of my... Sort of in the background, my like eye rolls over here. But, but how do you stop that, right? Anything. So like
1: we're already there now. Like we could we could have argued about this. Three Are months we? Ago. I
2: mean, we're already <laughs> there in the sense that okay, Ethermine is is leaving transactions out of their blocks, but there I mean, have been but once valid- Coinbase
1: is the is, once Coinbase is like the single biggest miner or validator on Ethereum. Yeah. Like, what do you think is going to happen?
2: I I mean maybe I'm naive, but I back. Maybe not Brian himself, but you know the mm. legal team around him to do that engagement and to you know find I mean, they have this two kind of weeks, vague solution. right.
1: The merges in two weeks. I, <laughs> no, it tells sure. me that Treasury is not going to give them an answer within two weeks
2: for sure. And do you think so? Is your position that in two weeks' time they're going to be leaving Tornado Cash transactions out? I'm I mean, not. Very high likelihood. Very high
1: likelihood. Because,
2: like, well, see, I, I would mean, take I the other side you, of that.
1: I just give you the, the calculus, right? Like, why you're a public company. Yeah. You know, they're probably. not, they're not just, they're not buying But biased. we
2: also just had this whole conversation about overcompliance and, you I mean, know. Coinbase is the epitome tether of compliance, and so on and so
1: forth. I mean, Coinbase is like the good always, boy of our industry. They weren't right? always. The, yes, in the very early days. I, not,
2: I like to think they still the got some of that company, DNA in them. They're the
1: only public company in crypto. Of course they are going to, re- you know, they're, they're going to respect OFAC restrictions when they're mining blocks, right? Because, like, they're literally, I mean, when you're validating a block, that means you're literally getting paid, By the person who's violating sanctions, right? They are sending you fees. So if there's anything that you could argue, this thing is, you know, violating.
2: Would that be your position on it? I'm really surprised to hear that. My position is that this should all be. I would say this is tech stack, this is neutral. I
1: agree with that. I agree Mm -hmm. with that. But what do you think? Like, that is what I guarantee you their lawyers will be telling them. We are accepting payments from people who are violating sanctions. That's what their lawyers will be
0: telling them. Mm -hmm. We we'll we'll cannot
2: do that. We'll see. I'll take the other yeah. side of that. I, I want to follow up into the Okay, and, we'll follow uh, up into two Yeah, come good. back right, on the show.
0: I think of it a little bit, sort of like like an analogs. Like I think about you know, sort of comping it to tour, right? And it's like if you run a tour exit node, um, you know, you might get raided by the police at some point because someone's accessing some illegal content or whatever off of your your node. Um, but you're not liable for that, right? Um, and and why is that the case? It's because you literally cannot inspect the content that you're relaying and the request that you're relaying. Mm-hmm. It's completely private. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, speaking of, like, technologists, I think, like, that might be a more constructive use of, like, people's energy and time is, like, well, speaking to Ms. Espresso <laughs> here, I think it's, like, um, looking for, you know, better scalable solutions for private transactions. And I think yeah. the privacy here, is, again, you know, privacy has had this, like, really long, difficult journey in crypto of, I mean, if they go through through the entire history, but it's always had this, this difficult part where people don't want to pay for privacy. Um, and, um, you know, it's it's like, um, you know, privacy, privacy from whom, generally in the past, it's been, you know, other people looking at your, your, your transactions on chain. Maybe the story here is, hey, um, if the compliance burden for, you know, these, these validators starts to get so high, you, the privacy is almost like a requirement in order to get your transaction mined, period, um, right? It's not that um, some transactions need this, some transactions don't. But it's just like, yeah, if you're coming from a particular IP, if you're trying to interact with a particular address, like I, I can see sort of this 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 bar continuing to get higher for um, what is a valid transaction and what's not. And maybe the only solution now is just like completely remove that that even censorship ability by by making the validators not able to think about, you know, what is a valid transaction.
2: Thank you for bringing us back to constructive <laughs> territory there because we're about to get into, um, yeah, fisticuffs over what's what's maybe going to happen with Coinbase mm. in two weeks. And love, love, love. yeah, I do have a tendency to sort of go off on like, these are all human problems. But I do think that you're right, that there are constructive ways to think about technological solutions to some of this. I don't think it's going to solve you know, what's happening here specifically with Ethereum, with the merge in a couple of weeks' time. But I do think longer term, I mean, something that has just become super obvious to me over the course of the last few weeks uh, with all of this fallout is the importance of not only transactional privacy, um, but also the importance of application layer privacy. And this is something that you know, we've been talking about Espresso now for like a year and a half. It's something that the folks at Alio have really spearheaded as well. Like we're not the only ones working on this. The concept is called decentralized private computation. Howard Wu and company um, out of out of Berkeley primarily, and again, working on Alio now, kind of spearheaded this with their work on Zexi. And we've built off of that at Espresso. What it does is it enables you to achieve again not only transaction level privacy which you could achieve obviously on ethereum with something like tornado cash where you know nodes and validators and the general public wouldn't be able to go and see who you're sending to whom but it would also mean that actually what applications are being called what smart contracts are being called will also be obfuscated and obfuscated even from validators and Look, I think that what you're painting is kind of a worst case scenario here of Ethereum is just fucked because Coinbase decides to uh, go with, what are people calling it, USA chain instead of, you know, ETH main chain. And we wind up with this crazy fork of realities. But in a way, it's also, ironically, perhaps, the future that we are kind of building for or at least a possibility that that we're kind of building for with espresso and with again dpc or decentralized private computation the ability to mask what applications are being called and i think that that's what the next generation of blockchains are going to look like i think that you know ethereum is going to have to find these types of solutions at some point down the line because i agree tom like plausible deniability is i think the best defense in all of these cases now do i also hope and think that we will be able to fight the good fight and keep nodes and validators on the tech stack side of things at least for the foreseeable future yes for sure but i think it's important that that we also have that yeah that more constructive and i think realistic conversation outside of social slashing about mm. the technolo- technological
1: well, it seems like the the, the the tornado ofac restrictions they've definitely struck fear in the hearts of a lot of privacy builders that i've been chatting with. oh for sure where people are just like okay well what is so a tornado is illegal even though it's fully not
2: to mention the guy who got arrested Alexa in the Perthes, netherlands that's right, right? that's right he's, you know he's he's a still cash dev
1: by the way who we still don't extended know the charges. His, exactly no charges they extended his holding period for another 90 days which is insane yeah um so it's scary a yeah. lot of privacy folks yeah. i know are scared because yeah. they're just like what what are the rules are you saying privacy is illegal if you're not what are you saying so you, you see actually FTX, um, so Aztec, which is the yeah, privacy FTX layer 2. Yeah, FTX blocking Aztec. FTX started blocking Aztec. Which Aztec, I mean, it basically it's it's not a mixer by any meaningful sense. It's just like a private pool of the same way that Zcash might yeah. be that also allows you to interact with DeFi. So how are you guys thinking about that given the stance that OFAC has taken against, at least nominally, against against the notion of privacy as being something that you're allowed to engage in?
2: Yeah, no, totally. So we have... <laughs> We have one product that's in market only on Ethereum's testnet. And so in a way, we are in a privileged position that at least, you know, sort of while our development time is, you know, uh, getting us towards mainnet, we can start to work out some of this and some of where we, again, as a company with shareholders and all of these considerations, Mm -hmm. and I as someone who's living in the United States and what have you, you know, where we're going to be comfortable drawing the line, Um, I don't. I I don't uh envy the companies that have these live products that are now facing this storm in real time with my senses pretty limited communications from these really important like kingmakers and gatekeepers, you know, these exchanges and whatnot that are just sort of it seems like arbitrarily blocking them. But the way that we're thinking about it and the way that we've been approaching privacy from the outset is to say all right, we want to deliver to developers and to deliver to end users the tools to be able to choose what stays private to whom and under what circumstances. And so I think the best kind of example to explain this uh, that I often turn to is, let's say you're a stablecoin provider, right? And let's say you're one of these risk-averse stablecoin providers. You're not Mm -hmm. Tether, who's happy again to kind of um, play a little fast and loose, and I think the industry needs that too but you're a relatively risk-averse stablecoin provider, you want to start enabling you know, merchant payments and B2B payroll and supply chain payments and all of these types of things. And in order to do that, in order to just meet basic user needs, you need to implement some level of privacy for them, right? Now, those types of players are obviously not, by and large, looking for sort of government-level privacy, right? They're mm. totally comfortable with whether it's Circle or another stablecoin provider, Paxos, whatever, still having insight into their transactions. They just don't want all of their competitors to know about all of this stuff. Um, And so you as the stablecoin provider can then build that into either a wrapper for your existing ERC-20 token or a brand new uh, token contract and say, okay, you know, we can see everything that's going on with these payments. No one else can see anything that's going on. You can get more granular than that. You can say, okay, above $3,000, which I think is the travel rule threshold, which is this guidance around like you know at what point you have to start reporting KYC information and stuff. Above $3,000, we can see everything that's going on for like more de minimis payments. Nobody can see anything, blah, blah, blah. You can get into having all of these kind of granular, fine-tuned controls now, my personal kind of philosophy around all of this, and like a lot of people hear that, to be clear, and they're like, you're building back doors, you're a freaking narc, like, you mm-hmm. know, why are you doing this? Well, that's still much better privacy than you can get on the Ethereum main chain today, mm, right. right? Like, that's still a huge improvement yeah, no, definitely. if you do care about privacy. Again, my personal philosophy on this is that we should be building more privacy tools in general, is that commercialization is a big part of the fight for keeping privacy as something that, you know, we can all have as a protected right, that being able to demonstrate like, look, there are legit uses going on here of this technology in general and of privacy approaches to it. I think all of that helps. And I think it helps move the Overton window away from where we are today, which is that everything needs to be transparent to everyone mm-hmm. all the time. But being in the trenches of, like, how to actually roll that out and implement it in these circumstances where everything is so uncertain is a very scary thing. And, you know, I mean, we uh, our code base is open source. Like, you know, I've had uh, engineers on the team Ping me, mostly, thankfully, ping our general counsel, not me, asking, like, I have no control over, you know, this is zero-knowledge privacy tech. Like, yeah. I have no control over whether someone copies and pastes some of this and goes and implements it in a way that, like, we are totally not comfortable with it. And, mm. you know, how mm. is that going to come back on me? So, yeah, it is, it is a very scary time. It's very uncertain. Um, but I think that, again, I think that in a way we are in a more comfortable position, not only because we're only on test net right now, although mainnet coming soon, um, but also because we are taking this more kind of, I think, nuanced approach to privacy as opposed yeah. to having positioned ourselves and kind of backed ourselves into this corner of like, we believe in all private, all the time, yeah. and then having to walk back from that. I think that's a really hard place to be right now
1: it is and it's where a lot of the kind of gen one privacy coins and like kind of the more cypherpunk original ethos was in crypto so like the moneros and the zcash they're like no screw you guys come and take it kind of energy and it does feel like that's not going to age well in the era of ofac restrictions Mm -hmm. yeah the idea that okay well tornado sanctioned by default if you interact with it you're 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 a bad bad dude yeah totally And the, the interesting thing now, you mentioned about the secondary, um, which I didn't know, the front ends that start blocking you if you're one hop removed or two hops removed from Tornado. It's crazy. Is, is that
2: going back in history, by the way? Like, is no, that? post sanction? Post sanction. Okay, yeah, I'm yeah. like, uh, do I? <laughs> yeah, can yeah, I, I not yeah, access
1: my TLIDX anymore? Because with Tornado. Totally. But of course, like, it, it opens. I mean, it's such an obviously broken concept because yeah. it opens up the ability to grief anybody because anybody totally. can just go put 0.1 ETH into cash send it to anyone
2: yeah. and
1: now that person can't use anything in defi yeah. Yeah. because the whole point of traders is that you can't tell who sent it right it, like, it breaks the link so the, somebody who's using trader cash to launder money looks identical to somebody who's getting griefed yeah. by getting sent 0.1 ETH. it ETH is funny how
2: cash. it brings out all of these like potentially fundamental flaws of, like we have not really given any thought, I feel like, on a product front as an industry. No, to the fact no. that you can just send and there's no sort of notion of like... Right. It, was it Grin that had the the whole thing where oh, like, you, to you receive, had to yeah, like you actively, actively to receive it? Yeah, that's
1: true. That's true. Which, RIP, which is a very bad UX because you have to be online. <laughs> to be online yeah. Totally,
2: for, yeah. No, no it was now. a terrible like, UX, it terrible but UX. it is interesting. But having like an inbox of UTXOs
1: that you can decide to... UTXO model makes it cleaner because then it's like, okay, this one this is the money I got sent for Terra cash. I will leave that over there. I'm not yeah. going to use it. Yeah. Um, in Ethereum, right, it's all just one big pile of Ether that totally. looks all the same, you know? So it's, it's. We, we also don't have a standardized way. Like, let's say you do get griefed. Someone does send you 0.1 ETH. How do you be like, no, 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 no. Uh, That's not mine. I'm deleted. Like, do you burn 0.1 ETH? And then does, like, does TRM pick that up? Mm-hmm. Does Chainalysis pick that up? Yep. Do you send it to a different address? Does TRM understand that? Like, you know, it's like... Ah! We don't know what you're supposed to do. There's no playbook. Totally. So Treasury just jumped all this stuff on us. Probably had no idea how the industry was going to react. And now we're all setting these stupid precedents that everyone else is copying because they're like, oh well, if if Infura did that, they probably better lawyers than I do, so I'll just do whatever Infura mm-hmm. did. Yeah. And as a result, we end up in this this moronic equilibrium.
2: Yeah.
1: And and now we have to talk about social slashing. <laughs> Which is why, so, to be yeah, clear, bring it back, so to, to, clear, social bring it back to social slashing. Yeah. Okay, bring it back to social slashing. Uh, I, I I tend to agree with Eric. Mm. I tend to agree with Eric that I think wow. Interesting. I think at some point you need like a sort of revolt of the public so that people know Ethereum is not run by corporations.
0: Mm.
1: It feels like it is. It certainly seems like it is. It seems like Etherscan and Fura and Coinbase have the real say over what happens, mm. right? And like I feel like Ethereum has not really had – that segwit moment, when you realize that, like, wait, no. I guys. thought that was
2: a very apt comparison that he drew to the segwit moment. The Absolutely. That, like, soft fork users all that with matter.
1: Users matter. And the users are very clear and unanimous in what they believe, which is that Ethereum should not censor. Hmm. Are and they? You, do you, you think they on that?
2: I genuinely don't know. Like, I. Certainly the loudest voices on Twitter are very I mean, who anti-bads. do you
1: think on Ethereum is pro OFAC restrictions in Ethereum itself?
2: I think that there are a lot of people who use this stuff as speculative asset, mm-hmm. as, like, a fun, cool new way to, like, fuck around on the internet. And, like, you know, using, playing around with NFTs the same way that I played around with Neopets when, whatever, sure, back yeah. in the 90s. Like, I think that there are all of these sort of, like— Emergent ecosystems of end users who don't give a about libertarian like censorship don't care. resistant.
1: Most people don't care, but the question is, do they want the restrictions? Is there anybody who wants? The I think restrictions? that
2: there are a lot of folks, both within the Ethereum user base right now, mm-hmm. and also who could be within the Ethereum user base but are yeah. not. Because they're uncomfortable with some of these dynamics around, like, there's a—even people who are, like, very sophisticated and spend all day on this Mm. stuff— Many have the the under the misunderstanding, rather, mm. that like if I deposit funds into Tornado Cash, I might be withdrawing like North Korean funds mm. like I'm uncomfortable with that or like I'm contributing sure. to the privacy pool I, I for bad North Korea. About
1: Uniswap. Like, blah, blah, blah. You, if you yeah. put money in Uniswap, you might also totally. trade with North Korea. Totally. Like nothing in crypto. But to be clear, defensive that's from that. not
2: even true with Tornado Cash. Like if exactly. I if I deposit exactly. in Tornado exactly. Cash, I can only pull out exactly. my own my own deposit. So this feels
1: to me like something you but, solve with education, not with Enforcing sanctions at the network level,
2: yeah. Like, mm. It seems
1: yeah. V- it, I, like to me this seems like, like that. Segwit as well, right? Segwit. Yeah. Most people didn't care. Most people didn't even know what yeah. Segwit means, yeah. Right? Segwit was just like a big rallying cry for people to fight on Twitter, right? Most people have no clue. I remember
2: spending hours trying to educate myself as to what yeah, Segwit totally, was. Yeah, totally. Ever, like it just seemed like the cool thing to be fighting to care. about. You're yeah,
1: absolutely. You just have an opinion about this very technical question of whether so se- segregated witnesses in Bitcoin and whether the block size will do this yeah. or that. And like you know, look in retrospect, it was it was a philosophical and political and religious battle yeah. that was ultimately being waged in Bitcoin. And we have not had that in Ethereum no since the DAO fork no. which was a long time ago. Yeah, and this feels to me like as close as you can get to the spirit of what blockchains are about, mm. which is that is there a monopoly by one country's interest? Which look, I'm an American, I love America, I think America's awesome. I think I think I think the the, the OFAC restrictions on on Tornado are stupid. But I think the restrictions on uh, the other things that they've sanctioned make total sense. Hmm. I mean, that you probably should sanction the Lazarus Group. You probably should, should The sanction. difference
2: being that they sanction the... Sanction the Lazarus. And we've yeah. talked
1: ad yeah. nauseum about why yeah. we yeah. think yeah. it's a bad idea. Yeah. Even if you think that, look, if you sanction tornado cash, it may be reasonable for exchanges and kind of you know, off-ramps and things like that to prevent people from cashing out with the tornado cash. All that aside, should the network basically be ingratiated to Treasury and to OFAC? I think the answer is no. Mm. The network should be... There should be distinct from that the same way that the internet does not enforce US sanctions. Mm. Which is right?
2: why we need to go and educate policymakers. I agree this with is that. I agree with that. Stack. But
1: this is happening now. It's happening in two weeks from now. Yeah. There's not enough yeah. time to educate people. Like, at some point, Ethereum, Ethereum can't really comply. Well, rely just don't do it. Just don't for overcomply. Just don't
2: overcomply, folks. I, I agree with it, but no one's listening
1: to me. No one's listening. To me. Look, at the point <laughs> where people have already overcomplied, like, out. how do you stop someone from overcomplying? The answer is that there needs to be a stick. There's only carrot for over over compliance, right? Which is that there's no risk. Mm. Nothing bad happens and I don't lose any revenue. There is a stick. You need to make it. What's the stick?
2: I mean, Brian Armstrong acknowledged it, I think. He said something on Twitter.
0: What does that mean? I mean, let's see what happens in two weeks. You've
2: got this wry smile going
0: on. Uh, No, I I agree. I think um, ultimately it's like the market will speak. You know, Mm. there's nothing stopping anyone from making FedChain today or a year ago or anything like that. Um, but there's not that pressure. I just like, you know, it, in also kind of running you know, a little bit of the ETH proof of work fork. It's like, yeah, I guess you could do that. Will anyone use it? Will the market respond totally. to it? Right. Maybe, right. I don't know. I think, um, you know, it's sort of As on- As
2: happened with the Dow back yes, in 2016. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, and like so I think was...
0: it's like, sure, you know, maybe you could employ social slashing, but it's sort of on you to convince the people who- matter in the market that like, yeah. this is the way to go yes. forward. Yes. Um,
1: but look, I think even the conversation mm. scares people, right? Because if you're like, look, if there's a 20% chance that our ETH gets flat, we have a lot of ETH at Coinbase. Yeah. That is a much bigger risk to our business than that we don't run staking and make a little bit of yield or whatever. We outsource it to some other party, right? Or we just put in DeFi and get some yeah. other yield. So just the conversation alone is enough to do a lot of the work mm. to scare people because the concept of social slashing obviously is a coherent one. And if people realize, look, the community, the core community believes this, right? It won in Bitcoin. It's not too late to say the same thing can win in Ethereum. Now it's certainly true that, it's not true that two forks will be viable. If you have a minority fork in Ethereum, that minority fork will die on arrival, the mm-hmm. same way that the path fork will die on arrival. But if there's enough of a movement internally that starts generating, you know, pressure, these guys will roll over very quickly mm-hmm. if they think that there's real energy there because they can't risk it. They can't risk getting slashed for that amount of money relative to, you know, the relatively small awards that they're – because most of the staking awards, they pay out to their customers. They don't keep it for themselves. Yeah. Right? They take a small spread. So to me, that's why I think you can't let this st- – you can't just say, like, well, okay, let's, let's, let's rely on the Blockchain Association to, like, go talk to lawmakers and in the meantime – you know, if you're able to do it. I think it's gotta to be
2: all of the above, right? I think that, but, yeah, I think it's important to come back and be like conciliatory here, but very genuinely too. I do think that it's gotta be all of the above. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that the conversations that are playing out are important and healthy. I am myself deeply skeptical of like how social slashing would actually be implemented and I'm very skeptical of the fact that you just would wind up back at the same the same problem of like, well, mm. who's creating social consensus around the social slashing then? Right. Um, but you know, I'm not against I'm not against the debate happening.
1: Yeah, the debate yeah. I think alone does a lot of work. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. at the end of the I day, like yeah. you, you need some somehow these norms need to be in place. Because they yeah. can't just be like it, it's kind of like you know when Trump came into office and started doing all this crazy stuff that nobody had ever mm. it, you kind of expect like, okay, well every president before has like released their tax returns and he was like, I'm not gonna do it. Mm. It's like what, 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 what? How? How do we stop you from doing that? How do we
2: social like, slash? Yeah. How do
1: we social president? slash the president? And the answer is like, there's no social slashing yeah. for the president. Yeah. Well, it's like okay. Well, we know what happens is, which is that the 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 Overton window just expands slowly, push by push, until at a certain point we're just like, huh. Wait. We're like in this tiny little enclosure now, and Ethereum is just like it compliance itself. Into becoming this totally different thing than what it started as. I
2: I just come back to like you need to be waging this war on all fronts. Like mm-hmm. you need you need folks like Tether to be comfortable taking risk, yeah. and like Coinbase in this situation too. You need Coinbase to be comfortable taking on mm-hmm. a little bit more risk mm-hmm. than they might otherwise be comfortable with, because there's pressure from the community and all of this. You need to be engaging in Washington and Brussels and you know wherever else. And I think you know, to the point around even developing the idea of social slashing to the point of developing things like decentralized private computations, Zexy, like you do need to be fighting on the technological front. But all of these things, as you say, like they have these very different time frames. Mm. like DPC is not coming in the next two weeks, you yeah, know, two yeah. months even. Um, you know, we're not going to solve the legal thing in the next two weeks either. And so, yeah, I think you need to... Keep some faith that some, <laughs> uh, some of these uh, uh, actors anyway will be down to go risk on.
1: I hope so. I hope, I hope so, too. So. I hope so. It's um, it's hard to be. It's
2: rare that I'm the optimist in the room. I know. This i i I'm weird. Impre- I'm, impre- I'm impressed this is that you been. It's a weird been, place to be. Been, I am usually been, um, like.
1: Defending the man. Yeah. Defending the man, which is good. Which is good. <laughs> it's a good place. It's a good place to be. Very diplomatic tone for a private. protocol. Is that why
2: you separated me that off of it? That is with actually the, uh, right. It's yeah. Really, yeah we've yeah, got
1: the crypto people and we've got the man over here. Yeah.
2: Kid, yeah, kid, that's kid. gonna be my intro next time I come on. That's right. We've got Jill, Jill Gunter, Jill the man. The
1: man. Yeah. The man. Okay. Well, I think we're up on time, uh, oh, Jill. Man. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing with us your totally wrong views about, <laughs> about privacy and compliance. Um, it's been another interesting week in crypto land. Thank you to all of you for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Take care, everybody. <laughs>